Hey there, submarine fans. It's Eric from the subvet.com, and you're listening to the Subvet Podcast. <laughs> Welcome aboard, everybody. It is me, Dave, along with... And I'm... Well, I'm Eric. Yeah, I knew that. Trying to tell you that. Pretty sure I'm Eric. Okay, yeah, you were telling me that. Sometimes he has to check. He doesn't know for sure who he is anymore. No. No. There you go. And uh, we've got a lot to get to today. uh, You may have noticed there's a lot of happening in the submarine news community. Lots. Lots Yesterday, the... USS Clamagore towed away yesterday for final disposal. Very sad. End of an era. I mean, I, I, it's a shame that, you know, well, we talked about this a few podcasts ago with the podcast museum pieces, but, you know, it's a shame that we couldn't find some solutions to well, save oddly some enough, of these. Yeah. Oddly yeah. enough, I actually have a base member at my subvets base who was a Clamagore crew member. Uh, went on to, as you were asking mm-hmm. earlier, become a ballistic missile fire controlman and worked with Regulus and Polaris. So and, he was and pretty sad. David and I, yeah. He was pretty sad about it. But, you know, it was inevitable. It was in such bad shape. I don't see any way that they could possibly have, uh, have saved it. Oh, it was, be- it was beyond repair. I mean, I, I don't know how long it was. Was it deteriorating like that even when they were letting people on board? I think yes. it was. Yes. Yeah, yeah, scary. But what happens when you don't chip and paint for a long time? Remember how we used to chip and paint every off group? Oh, my God. Needle guns and painting. Needle guns and painting. Right. Needle guns and painting. It was a lot of fun. So there's that. We still haven't started World War Three, although Eric is still convinced that it's going to happen, what, tonight? It, no, any minute. Any minute. I mean, because so we got, I mean, there, so the, they got, I just uh, put a, a podcast or it's an intro to the final war. So, and I've always believed that too. I think China is the bigger threat than Russia. I've always thought that because uh, I mean, and we need to do another podcast and we, we need to just break that down and how that, how that got to create it. Cause you know, in the last, in the last uh, recent, what would you say? Recent 200 years, who's killed more people, you know, for genocide. It's, it was Mao. And it's always been the CCP threat. And then and then you got that, well, may or may not politicians from both parties, I feel, have been probably may or may not as selling secrets off to the Chinese all this time. And they've just been building up in the last 20 years, just a huge buildup. And here we are. I mean, they got all this new fancy equipment. Is it better than ours? Maybe, maybe not. Do they got super secret stuff, too, that they're not talking about? Just like Russia says they have super secret stuff, too. Just like Trump says he had what he what was his term term for super secret? It was something else. Super duper or something. Super he said duper. something. The best ever. The super 
Yeah, the super best duper right. is pretty funny. Yeah, but oh, you know, back yeah, in, you know, folks. And right? uh, <laughs> all, all you really need to know from Eric is that World War Three has not started yet. And that means right. that we can be joined this afternoon by a yet another guest. Constantinos yeah. Leos is, well, as you're going to tell from his accent, he's not from these here parts. He's actually from down under Australia, although that is not where he is. He is in Greece, which is uh, fascinating to me for reasons that I'm not going to get into here because I do cover them on my own show. But Constantine, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you for having me, Eric and Dave. Glad Very to have you to be here. So let's start with the first question I always ask is, where are you in Greece? So I'm in a small city in Western Greece. Um, even if I tell you the name, you'll forget it very quickly. But it's a charming piece of country, um, very close to a castle, a medieval castle. 20 kilometers from here, we have an ancient theater. And it's not so far from Actium, which I think you can recall, Dave. Yep, easily. So uh, how'd you get, how'd you end up in Greece from Australia? What? Uh... Well, it's the, um, the, the Greek nostalgia, I suppose. My father was a migrant to Australia in the 70s, and his plan was always to come back to Greece. And he was able to convince my mother, and um, here we are. We moved here about 20 years ago. Well, that pretty much explains the Greek name as opposed to the Australian name. A very, very Greek name. <laughs> That's uh, well. We're glad to have you here, and we're going to get into why he's here in just a few moments. But tell us a little bit about yourself, other than where you're from, obviously, because we've already covered that. Fair enough. So um, I like um, reading, usually history. Um, I'd like to say I do sports and exercise, but that would be a blatant lie. I enjoy enjoy sunlit walks with my family, and that's about it. And I teach English, this wonderful language that does not obey its own rules, unlike German or Latin. This is true, which is not the word for true. <laughs> you get the idea. So you, you, you are an author, and I have a standard author question that I ask every author. Right. So you're, there's nothing new here, which is mm -hmm. nobody rolls out of bed in the morning, feet hit the floor, and they go, Today, I will write a book. It's a process. Yes. I've done it before, though. I do it. Yeah, but you didn't write the book. But I do it like once a week. Right, but I you never write that. the book. No, I never write the book. But I do. I do. Follow, but we have it. Right. Anyway. It would be a different Carry story. But you never write the book. So, <laughs> so Con, tell me, tell me a little bit about your first book, what that process was like, um, what the book is about, where people can, you know, the standard author stuff, before right. we get into why we have you on the subvets, which has right. nothing to do with your first book. Right. So it's a great question, Dave. Um, so let's see. Where shall we start? So, you know, I think um, a person who writes books is always a person who has read many books. Um, but the, the turning point, the tipping point, I think, is twofold. After having read a lot of books, whether they're history books, scientific books, fiction books, right? Everyone kind of feels, well, you know, I've read so many books. Maybe I could write a book, right? I think most people might think this at some stage, but to cross 
the bridge and to actually make the conscious effort to write something is, is something of a tipping point. So I think the first thing that um, helped me was um, even though I was living in Greece, I did um, HSC, which is year 12 um, with an Australian distance education school. And I did year 11 and year 12 history, which was really actually advanced, right? It was like um, coursework that you would do here in Europe, maybe second year of university. It was like how to write a scientific paper, really. I mean, but you're in, I mean, being in Greece, I mean, that's like history central. It is. As far as I'm concerned. It's one of the few places in Europe where all the ruins are, are, well, they're not, yeah, the ruins, but, but yeah, it wasn't completely decimated by the, the the wars we, you know, with Rome and, and the Arabic wars and, you know, that destroyed all the, all the cities before and the Germanic tribes that came down. At least you got some history to look They've at. You've got it's lots amazing. of history to look at, and it's everywhere, Eric. I mean, if you want to build a house outside a major city, you need to get a permit from the archaeological department. They have to dig five meters below where you want to build your house. <laughs> and if they find something ancient, the house isn't going to be built because it'll take them three years to get through the red tape to dig everything up. So you hope you don't find anything ancient where you That's want to build your house. That's a problem I haven't <laughs> uh, heard. That's a problem I definitely have not heard before. <laughs> oh, I've, I've seen it happen. <laughs> um, so, yes, history is everywhere in Greece. Um, I feel the tipping point um, was this course that I felt I learned how to write. And um, going through university, I realized that I could write. This was what my professor said. My papers were very good. And one fateful day, a very close friend of mine published a small book self-publishing about the Greek Civil War, I believe. Not too long, 100, 120 pages. And he presented it and I said, wow. He went and interviewed people. He found his sources and he published a book. I said, well, I could do that. So that was the, the tipping point. So I said, okay, what's next? You need to choose a topic that is interesting and you really find fascinating if you don't find it fascinating you're not going to make it through the process so i chose world war ii the choice was either world war ii or the roman empire or the roman republic um and i chose world war ii because it's far better documented um, with roman history or any sort of ancient history beyond, beyond a certain point it is guesswork maybe you can be 60 percent sure about what you're saying 70 percent mm. Well, with Julius Caesar, for example, we base our books on what he said about himself. Mm. Well, if I wrote a book about myself, it would be lovely, wouldn't it? But this is all we have. Well, but you were saying like... himself were lovely. What? I don't know. I'm lost on that one. Anyway, but you were saying like he wrote a 120-page book. So My the thing friends. is, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but you know, most people, like, they write a big book or volumes of book on World War II. They want to cover everything. Yes. But I do find it interesting if you can uh, find a microcosm of history or a subject matter and drill into a specific area, um, you know, like you can talk think, about Rome, and that, that's what your friend did, and with the hundred twenty. So he chose. Page. He chose yes, a small episode, right? And he wrote a small book, which is what I did with my first book. Um, I mean, a very big book is very, um, very ambitious. Very difficult and lots of room for error. It's going to take you literally five to 10 years. You'll, you'll be an old man before you finish it. Um, and right. then still might not be published, right? So, um, 
I chose a small sector on the Eastern Front. It's a 17-day engagement. Where we call it the fourth battle of Kharkov between the 3rd and the 23rd of August, 1943. It's the last time the Germans lost the, the key city of Kharkov, which we know, now call Kharkiv, which unfortunately we can see battles raging in that area today. Um, the, the very same villages I recognize all the place and all the towns. Um, so that's what I wrote about. It's actually called the Waffen SS divisions um, in this battle because they're very well documented and make no mistake, many of the officers and men in these divisions committed war crimes. Um, but the divisions were self were, themselves were of very high quality, um, very well documented. Um, so lots of, lots of books, lots of original German documents to work with. So I sat down, I searched for photographs. That was an interesting process, finding photographs, asking people for photos, buying expensive photos, and then working with the German source material and bibliography. And I came up with a 160 page book. I beat my friend, um, but very specific. No one had ever written a, a book on that battle before. And so you did all you did all the all the deep dive homework um, where you, mm -hmm. doc, you document all your sources, your footnote it properly, everything, and... everything, everything. Yeah, that takes a lot of work. I mean, that's not. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people just write. We just throw, like the, some of the guys we got writing leadership book. Although some of them do do some footnotes on a day, right? But they just write their visions and their their processes of what their personal experiences are and stuff. But, you know, when you deal with history, it, it takes a it lot of work. It has dude. to be documented. Right? And you, you got to interview people and, and get kind of dig into it and be careful because you can't offend people if you don't get some oh, stuff sure. right. And sure. I guess you offend people either way when you write history books anyway, because somebody's going to say, well, that's <laughs> not exactly what happened, you know? <laughs> uh, you need to be careful, especially with controversial topics. Um, you need to have a disclaimer with World War II, especially with the German army, that you know that you're you don't want to offend you know anyone um, on either side, because though you know members of especially the SS were complicit in war crimes and the Holocaust, but there were men there who were just soldiers, right? So you you don't know what they may or may not have seen. So if you encounter maybe a relative of theirs, because these men are, are dead by now, very few left um, in Germany. They're ninety five or ninety eight. Very few veterans left alive. So you need to be careful how you tread and you want to be very professional. You need to use your sources. You don't want to uh, recreate any inaccuracies that have been written, you know, in the past. Were you able to travel to the battleground at all up in Kharkiv? Oh, no, no. I've, I've never traveled to, to Kharkiv. Um, uh, I would have liked to. Um, maybe <laughs> in a couple of years from now. <laughs> I don't think it's uh, prime real estate at the moment. Um, I've trekked around Germany, but I, I think it was when I was in Germany, it had not been opened up. You know, the, the, uh, East, East Germany was still been, East yeah. Germany now. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, it was still East, the wall was, well, the wall had fell, but, you know, people had not really incorporated, you know, because I was there 91, I guess right as the wall was falling. Because I remember mm -hmm. I got a beer stein with a piece of the, the wall uh -huh, with a piece of the wall yesterday they do so i was there that. before the wall fell a couple of times yeah because i do submarine patrols in scotland my parents lived in germany at the time so i'd run in and i got to see a lot of those castles and stuff and there's castles dotted everywhere it's like lots of history and i really enjoyed that and and here and there you would see things about you know the world war ii and stuff like that but i didn't see a, 
a lot of emphasis on that. I don't know if it's because people want to forget about the war in Germany or what, but I, I know there's markers, but it didn't seem as present as ancient history was to me anyway. So that was just my observation. Or I could have just been my general self and not being so observant as well. I mean, that could happen too, but I did get to trek around Germany and right. that's for sure. So before we move on here, and and folks, you'll understand why we're asking these kinds of questions here in just a bit. When you're writing this book and you're doing this research mm-hmm. about this particular unit in this battle, what surprised you? What 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 is it that kind of said to you, "Oh, this is different than I expected it to be"? Very good question, Dave. Um, so, I think the general truth for these these divisions that I chose. These three SS divisions, Dazreich, Totenkov, and the Viking division, were all exceedingly high quality. And this was their third battle that summer, back to back. So they fought at Kursk, which I'm sure everyone has heard of, um, between the 5th and the 17th of July. Three days later, they were shipped to the south of Russia, to the Meuse River, which is roughly 100 kilometers, I would say, northeast of Mariupol, another location we've heard of this year. And they fought there for 10 days in a very fierce battle, because remember, in World War II, this this action is very, very intense. Um, And they concluded that battle successfully. They were sent there to counterattack against the Russian attack. They were sent in as the firefighters, so to speak, of the Eastern Front. And after concluding that battle, they were shipped straight back to Kharkov to fight off another Russian attack. So um, these divisions acquitted themselves exceedingly well despite fighting the entire summer. So I think that was what really um, impressed me as soldiers. I think I find, particularly when studying history, that there's always... I, I guess there's something that attracts us to each particular area of interest. And I don't know about you, but my area of interest tends to fluctuate with what I'm actually working on at that particular moment. So if I'm talking about anti-federalists, all of a sudden I want to know more about Brutus or Fubulus right. or something along those lines. And I, you know, the World War II element of it, as you said, has been so well documented. Do you ever... Do you ever run into the the mindset that there's just too much information about World War II? This is this is something I've seen with other <laughs> authors in the in the sense that why are you writing another book about World War II? That's World War II. A, a, a very good question, Dave. Yes. Um. Uh, so there definitely is. Um. I wouldn't say too much information. You can never have too much information, but you can have too many books. So I do think. We have too many books on, on, on World War II. So that's why I chose something that nobody has published in a standalone book. Lots of authors have written something about this battle as part of a, a larger book, maybe describing one of these divisions. They described what happened there for just a couple of pages. Um, but I decided to focus on this battle. I don't know if you look at, um, I don't know, the invasion of Normandy. Just Google that or just put it in Amazon. You'll find like 120 books. Maybe they're 10% different from each other, right? Maybe there are the five best books. And then you have another hundred that have borrowed material. Maybe they've interviewed one extra veteran 
you know. Um, so well, I think they're at. Or the yes? flip side of that is then you get the revisionist, the new history of something. <laughs> and supposedly it's got, you know, a different. They never they never turn out quite that way is what I'm driving at. Oh, <laughs> I got a quick idea. I wanted to, just to throw out there. I mean, so here you wrote a book about German German soldiers, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so and people like, well, Germany, they lost, you know, they're, uh, Hitler. Right. It, so they, you know, you think of visions of some people get hatred and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the older I get. And and see and having lots of Russians and Ukrainians in the in the Denver area where you know you meet them and you're you know like the Cold War we're just taught right. you know Ukraine was part of Russia those bad guys and 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 to to Dave and I to a certain way we still look at them as bad guys because it just gets ingrained into you so much so what what I'm saying is that it, as no matter what side you're on when you're fighting in war or you're even preparing for war I mean the people around you are your brothers. Regardless, I mean, you're, you're no longer fighting. Well, you're still fighting for a country or maybe even a division or something overall, but you're fighting to keep each other alive and fighting to succeed, you know, because you don't want any of your brothers to the left or right of you to obviously get hurt or killed. So you're you're doing your best, regardless of what side. Of, were you able to mm-hmm. uh, get into in, any of the individual stories of some of who these men were or these veterans yes. were? Yes, yes. I That's what I find stories. fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interspersed with um, eyewitness accounts, which I have borrowed though from other authors, with their permission, of course, because um, the, as I said, these veterans are dead, like ninety-five percent of them. Um, I mean, I, I find out whenever a veteran dies in Germany, they're like ninety-five to ninety-eight, a hundred and one. Um, they're they're not really giving interviews anymore, but they were interviewed very extensively in the nineties. So there's a lot of interview material around. Um, and sometimes you can get into contact with um, their descendants, maybe a son or a grandson, maybe find some material. Um, but I have included many individual stories, um, which really brings it to life. Um, there are some ancient out-of-published um, German books that were printed maybe by ex-officers themselves, self-published in the 70s, which are by now public domain. and um, they have stories from soldiers, from uh, people who have died, and it's it's there, right? You need to speak some German. I can read German to a certain extent. You need to, you know, research to find these um these books. But yes, I have many eyewitness um, accounts. It's very dry without it, you know. Then it's just a like just a, a political essay, really, you know. And at the end of the day, just history. If you mm-hmm. no try to bring accounts. some of these people back to life, exactly, exactly. You know, uh, look at the human side. We find that, especially in the submarine world, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, the fact that submariners are submariners the world around. It really doesn't matter what flag they're under. And we tend to talk about that in terms of the Cold War and the Russians. To some degree, I think it's true. I will admit it's a little harder for me to look at it this way. But even in World War II, where German submariners were, I mean, let's just face it, slaughtered at an incredible rate. Um, yes. But I have my own opinions about that for another show. <laughs> but you're right. You find these stories, and they are written. And I, I do remember many of those books coming out uh, in the 70s, especially in mass market paper books, paperbacks. And, and they're gone now. You can't find them anywhere. But if you can find them, they tell some, some amazing stories about things that, that went on then that really humanize it. 
And that's one of the things that I've always appreciated about books that do that. They humanize the past in a way that maybe we didn't think about before. Well, every, every book is available, Dave, if you, if you, <laughs> if you search hard enough. Um, you have enough time. That's... You need time. You need right. time. Oh, my God. My, my, my wife complains. She says, you know, you spend so much time searching for books, but she says you've done really well. It's, it's amazing research. She also studied history. So uh, my wife was complains it? about my books as well. <laughs> the sad so one, part, what I haven't told her is one, I'm going to get more today, tomorrow. So. Well, so what, what I was gonna, one part about the, the, the submarine world. So, you know, World War II history as well. But believe it or not, folks, the Cold War is history. It's getting to be cold. Uh, I mean, old. Well, it's getting to be cold material. Right? It, it's at the end of the Cold War. It's over, over, over 30 years now. And it's getting away from us. And there's no coverage on because, you know, this, being the silent service and submariners, it doesn't matter, again, what flag you under. We still don't like to talk about what we did. Us as veterans. You know, we want to keep the secret stuff secret because that's just who we are. It's ingrained in us. Whether, you know, like Dave and I talk, you know, what some of the equipment we worked on is way over 30. In Dave's case, 40, 50, 80 years ago. I think Dave was on submarines in 1910. That's all right. <laughs> but, you know, there's no way for us. Yeah. It, <laughs> Dave's giving me some uh, hand signs and gestures. That's all right. But, you know, there's nobody to really cover submarine veterans for, as an outsider. So that's why we brought you on the show today, because I find it interesting as a young historian. And you, like you said, you, you're a published author already, and you've chose the topic of submarines. So, and it's the Cold War, and you're covering a, a certain type of submarine. So, again, it's good to choose a microcosm. And and the one we're getting ready to discuss now, believe it, it's still in use now, but it's 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 aging out. These these uh, some of these summaries are well over thirty years old now. So so uh, how did you uh, get into the submarine topic? How did you get introduced into the submarine world and get interested in it? And and we're going to talk about your new book that you're working on. Uh, that's a great question, uh, Eric. Uh, well, I think the person who introduced me to submarines was uh, Sean Connery in Red October. Good introduction. <laughs> yes. Uh, I remember the first time I saw that movie, I was uh, in Australia and maybe eight or nine years old. And I remember the tremendous impression it made on me. So I have always had a great interest in um, submarines. And for some reason, not so much World War II submarines, which I find a little bit um, strange given my my um, interests, but I've never found U-boats so interesting. I found them passably interesting, but I don't know. I think our interests aren't always chosen by us. It just happens, you know? So um, I've done a lot of reading, or at least a fair amount of reading about submarines. I had, you know, the teenage love of the typhoon because it was, you know, the biggest. I think as an adult, having done a lot of reading, I really, really fell in love with the USS Ohio class, the Trident boats. The Ohio being the lead boat of the, what we call the Ohio class. The Ohio class, yeah. indeed. Um, and, um, you know, just preparing for today, I thought about, I really thought about, I said, Con, why do you like the Ohio class so much and not like Seawolf or, I don't know, the Delta Four or the Typhoon? 
And I think just objectively looking at it, the Ohio is probably the most successful SSBN design of all nations. Um, I mean, it's 2022, right? Halfway through November, the first Ohio, the Ohio, the namesake of the class, was commissioned on the 11th of November, 1981, I believe. That was 41 years ago. She's still in the water, which and I started find amazing. construction, I think, in the 79. I don't know. I'm, I can't remember. Yeah, I know it's we're back there. Three or four years beforehand, for sure. Um, I find that amazing. So while the typhoons have come and gone, um, the Delta IV is slowly being phased out. Um, Delta threes. Um, we now have the new Bore class, um, which looks a lot like an Ohio, if you think about it. Um, so I feel it's a highly successful submarine. That there seems to be no very dedicated book. There are two books out, one by a fellow called De Glaish, I believe. He wrote it in 1984. I don't have it because shipping from the United States is like $70 to have it sent to Europe. And he covered the development, the, the political aspect of the development, which was very uh, painful for the Ohio's. And a book by Jim Goodall, who covers uh, these sort of submarines, a photo book about 80 pages long, um, which is quite interesting, but I feel we have space for another book on the Ohio class, perhaps a bit bigger. So what are you gonna what are you gonna tell us about this Ohio class submarine? What what is it that uh, appeals to you about it other than its success? Well, I think it's a very um, attractive looking submarine. Um, I mean, <laughs> if you if you look at it, just the the symmetry and the shape is, is I find very very aesthetically pleasing. The the typhoon is just overly large. Uh, the Delta IV is a little bit um, ugly. The way the the missile um, a missile bank, what do we call it? The, um, the turtle back is shaped. Um, the Ohio looks very, uh, very business shaped submarine. It, it is aesthetic. I would agree with you. It's aesthetically pleasing because when I, when you first reached out to me, I was like, I found it interesting I, I, being a young, younger historian that, that you wanted to c cover the topic of submarine. So, but I'm like, hey, you know, we got the beginning of the missile program. The, the boat side was on the 41 for freedom. Dave being on in Michigan, of course, you know. He's he's definitely he can tell you a lot about the Ohio class and I'm like what? Yeah, but but as we've discussed already in this podcast you do have to pick a small microcosm and it helps if you're interested in the in the topic so I would agree as someone is I mean I I, I would I was at no two so I got to write a lot of the Ohio class boats and 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 you to me it never got old seeing the Ohio class up close I mean even when because when I pulled in on the Grant. And the Tennessee was testing the first D5 launch. That's the famous picture where the when the rocket came out of the water and did the twirly twirl. The first stage of the rocket nozzle, you know, failed on it. I mean, we look like a guppy next to the to the Tennessee. I mean, that's and here we are. We're carrying 16 missiles too, just not as big. And <laughs> the boat boat just lately. So it it's large, but it's I don't know. It's sleek. It, it it does have that sexy look to it. So I can I can understand why you chose it for sure. So I mean, it's good. Like I said, if somebody's got to do it, and 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 I'm glad you chose it. So um, you what kind of book uh are are you writing? I mean, you've shared some of it, but I wanted you mm -hmm. to tell me your own words. What kind of book you're you're trying to get out and show everybody? You know, because we it you're right. We're talking about how it looks and aesthetic and 
and, and what a success it's been. So, um, good question. Um, I haven't decided on the complete um, final count of the pages because I, I keep finding photos that I want to include. Right. Um, I think we're looking at under 200, maybe 150 pages. Um, I'm going to have a description of the, uh, of the development, um, construction, and uh, then I'm going to describe, uh, well, really it's the naval treaties, the nuclear non-proliferation treaties that took place in the 90s and the early 2000s that affected the class. So um, while they were completed as 18 boats, each with 24 Trident missiles, the first eight had the C4, the subsequent boats had the D5. Um, early into the 90s, I believe it was in 1994, the START II agreement, if I'm not mistaken, um, called for the decommissioning of some missile tubes. So um, the U.S. Navy very wisely um, chose to convert the first four boats, the Ohio, the Michigan, the Florida, and the Georgia, to SSGNs, which I find even more fascinating. So they turned these very good um, nuclear deterrent platforms into, shall we call it, conventional deterrent platforms. So they carry an enormous amount of uh, Tomahawk missiles, as much as three Ali books, I'm not quite sure, but an enormous amount. It was a very good usage of the hulls. Um, and then we had the later naval treaty, I think in 2010, um, where four, four tubes per Ohio had to be um, not used. So this is a subsequent history that hasn't really been covered. There's a very good book by Norman Polmar about Cold War submarines, and he does a good job of, of covering um, the Ohio class the development until about 2000, 2003. That's when the book was published. So I follow his story. He's done a very good job of describing to that point. And I follow his story and describe what has happened after 2003. So more the history of the SSGNs and the subsequent treaties that changed the Ohio. That's oh, the he's one. got it right That's there. It. There it is. Yeah, there you is. won't disagree with me. I mean, I'm, I'd be interested to hear what Dave's thought is. But, you know, over the, the success of the platform, 40 years on, and ongoing, I mean, it's, a, it's turned out to be probably one of the most flexible platforms that the United States has built since, since uh, we started building nuclear submarines. So, I mean, I, there's a lot to it. And um, I don't, you probably can't cover everything. And, you, you know, talking to you, you've opened up a lot of questions, you know, because when you, I hear you talking and you're, and you're spouting, I'm like, oh, yeah, I didn't think of it. I, mean, I think of it after you said it. I'm like, yeah, we did have the START Treaty. There was reasons why. And Dave and I, we discussed how, you know, we had to, they de decommissioned the last four tubes to go align with that agreement, you know, where you can only you know, have. A, do you know what yeah. I learned this week? I What's learned that? this by accident. It's not the last four tubes. It could be any of them, right? It is four tubes. <laughs> four tubes. <laughs> it, it It's four tubes, but it's not necessarily or absolutely the last four. They've spread them out through the, through the missile house. So it's spor sporadic. And, and as many rockets that I got to play with and launch off those boats, nobody clued me in on it. I was just there to do a job. And that's, it's funny. I, it, you don't really drill it, you know, because the, the, each system on board is so sophisticated. That's why we have d different rates. You just tend to drill in on what your rate is and do your particular job. And sometimes it's, it's hard to step back as a historian. And look at the whole program, right. and and like I said, you, there is a reason why they wanted them built, you know. And then and then there was uh, politicians, I'm sure, that were trying to stop the building of the 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 Trident or the T hole 
Because uh, probably because Jimmy it's Carter so expensive tried, and everything. Jimmy Carter tried to stop them um, being Which is surprising, being a submariner <laughs> himself, you know? Indeed. <laughs> um, but you, he wasn't. What do you me. hope to accomplish with this? What do you. What's the story, I guess, you're trying to tell? Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, uh, that's a great question, Dave. How shall I put it? So, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here and. Up there, I can see my book by James Goodall again on the Seawolf class, right? Seawolf and Virginia. Uh, I think I can, I can show it to you. And this is a, a beautiful book, right? Um, a memorial, um, or um, a memorial is maybe a poor word, but it's just, you know, a book that shows us these submarines and it showcases them in, in a beautiful manner. The submarines, the bases, the men, and it's just a pleasure to look through. And I said, I saw this book, I said, nope, uh, there's no need for me to write anything about the Seawolf class. James Goodall has it down. It's got to be covered. Right. It's, it's covered. It's a, it's a great book. And my goal is to just create a beautiful book about the uh, Ohio class. Brief history, not too long. It's not World War II, right? Five, ten pages is about the text, okay? The development, Rickover, um, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan eventually managed to push it through. These recent developments, as you mentioned, Eric, and some very, very recent things like uh, I think one of the Ohio's did see action uh, in Libya in 2011 in Enduring Freedom, according to Wikipedia and some other sources I found, fired 90 Tomahawk missiles um, off Libya. Um, and I think the last development that I've included um, is that I think they're going to test hypersonic missiles from your higher class, which I think is, again, an enormous step forward. just shows the durability of the hull. Well, it certainly is that. I think uh, in, when you're looking at enduring weapon systems, you've got the B-52 and then the Ohio class, which even up here, they're talking about, well, they were supposed to start decommissioning them here in the next couple of years, but now that's being even pushed back. pushed back. Yep. And it wouldn't surprise me to see it go for another 10 or 15 years, but I think the, um, the launch date is 2031 for the Columbia. Um, we'll have to see. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I, I specifically refers to the, to the, to the first four, which have been, um, I'm trying to say this politely. They've been beat to hell. I mean, they really have. <laughs> so um, they're, they're coming close to the end of an operational lifetime, but, they are, you know, I can say this as someone who sailed on one. They are beautiful ships. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking that the very first time I saw it, first thought that went through my head was that is a big boat. But yeah, it, and it I remember, oh, uh, I mean, you were, you cruised through sub school in, uh, what was it, 82, probably? 81, 82. Over, yeah. over Christmas of 81, 82. So they really had, I mean, they were building T holes, but. I don't know if you saw them coming out of the garage, but you know, when I was there in 87, it was just crazy seeing the amount of construction across the river. And, uh, he, sh- he shared some of his work with already with me, you know, just uh, looking at it. And you, and, and there's some of the pictures I posted on the subject group before we just see three, four, maybe even five boats being like, you see two boats out on the ways one it's in the water and another one it's poking out. And I remember seeing those things across and just how immense I'm like, those things are, they're literally looking like city buildings on their side. You know, when they're under construction, they haven't took 
taking on the sexy symmetry like we brought up earlier yet. You know, you can see them all apart as they're still building them. It's just immense at how large they are. It's an amazing the the technical know-how the ha- and skill without the computer systems like we have today to build the di- different things we build. And here they were doing it with uh, lesser technology and to be able to build a weapon system that is endure- and like the B-52, that it's starting to prove itself that it can endure over and over again. Even though the first four have been beat to hell, it's still very impressive with how long these things have lasted and it's what they've been able to do with it. It's amazing how forward-looking they were with these boats. I mean, they did, they did think about the future with them. E- even though the technology was limited at the time, even though the, tech, the equipment was still very 1960s, 1970s when initially installed. You know, it's funny because I, I have this argument with my son all the time who is a technophobe, technophile. Not a phobe, he's a file. <laughs> um, you know, I, and I described to him the Mark 98 fire control computer. And, you know, it's this was 1982, 83. And, you know, that technology, it, it's, I mean, it, I, I laugh about it now, but, you know, this stuff doesn't even exist anymore. It's been replaced with a laptop. So, but they were looking forward to it, and they knew that someday that would happen, and the, the, the platform either had to be able to handle that. It obviously can. So they did well with them. I just wish mine wasn't going to be decommissioned anytime soon because, you know, when they decommission these things, they, they scrap them. It hurt. Well, it hurts. No other way to do it. <laughs> I'm sure it hurts. It hurts. Mm-hmm. So. Well, Con, where, uh, where can people get your first book? And when do you expect your second book to be ready? So um, my first book is published on Amazon. If you type uh, the fourth Battle of Kharkov, it will come up. Or you can type my full name, Konstantinos Leos, it will come up on Amazon. Uh, I think uh, it's retailing at, oh, I have it on special this week. Oh, who did that? Okay, so. Even better for the podcast on special. And I'll provide links to his book folks on uh, uh under the podcast there oh well, it's on special we'll leave it there so uh 1999 us dollars um until the end of october and my ohio book um so the original plan was by the end of october i think that's a little bit optimistic but maybe first 10 days of november november the 15th at the latest it should be out so i pretty much finished with the text get it uh, out for christmas that would be a good oh, timing Oh, that's sure. a that's a huge change in in publishing, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. time was when you got a an advance and you had a contract and you had to deliver X number of pages by certain date. Now with right. self publishing, it's a lot easier, isn't it? Uh, I think self publishing has has made um has made the the world of books um, certainly more diverse. So um, I would say, on the one hand. There are people who probably shouldn't have written a book and they are able to write a book. On the other hand, you get people who are able to write a very good book, but a traditional publisher simply will not take a risk or they just don't see the um, market value in your book. I agree with that. His name is Konstantinos Leos. He is an author from Greece. He's written a book, as I said, on the, on, as he said, on the Fourth Battle of Kharkov and has an upcoming book on the Ohio class. Check. Uh, keep your eye on uh, Amazon so you can get it there. Constantine, uh, Constantinos, like I, I keep leaving off the end. It's okay. <laughs> Constantine, that sounds... It's a Roman emperor, you know? Yeah, yeah. An emperor, Constantine, same name. And he's also <laughs> on the subvet group. Uh, he's been... How long have you been on the subvet group? 
So, um, I mean, so people can um, reach out to you and talk to you there and make your own chat. Maybe, maybe you can get some more, share some information. And of course, not, you know, everything you want in your book, you want, you want it to be open source. It has to be open source, which yep. we all agree on. It should be that. And, and you want to be able to footnote it and document yep. it. And, and like I said, he shared some of his material with me and he's really done his homework. And I really think this is going to be a good book. Uh, you know, what he's shared with me so far. And I, I'm I'm certainly looking forward to it. You're, you're going to see a lot of great photos in there for sure, and well documented too. So we certainly and, uh, yeah. we certainly wish you luck with it, and and hope the best. And who knows what happens after that? Maybe you uh, maybe you do one on the forty one for freedom. <laughs> yes, forty one for freedom. Dang it! I need a, I need if he's not going to do it i need somebody a young and out there historian to to document the 41 period because we're going to be dead soon dave sooner than me <laughs> but i'm not 41 for no. freedom. <laughs> but i'm not for 41 freedom <laughs> constantine it's been great having you here today looking Thank you forward so much. to seeing more and more from you on the on the subvet you can check that outline at facebook.com slash groups slash the subvet or just go to the search bar and type in the subvet don't uh, don't uh don't go to the imposters. Stay with the original. Stay with the original. There's you can find us on yeah. and you can find us on Twitter too. Twitter slash the subvet. And you can find me, Eric Ryle, at the subvet.com. You can email me at Eric at the subvet.com as well. And be sure to check out some of the products and merch we have on there as well. When you get on the website, there's lots of old podcasts. So this is not the only cast you've seen before. Be sure to go back and look at our store on our YouTube channel. So you can find that link there as well and and, and see some of our old casts on Spotify, Apple, um, shoot, you probably got us on iHeart as well. So we're on all the major platforms. You can find the Subvets podcast. You can get me at Dolphin Dave at slipperyfish.com or my website, thedavebowmanshow.com. And on that note, we are. Subvex. You always mess that up. See you next week. No mushroom clock yet.